Good evening, and welcome to the last Monday night lecture of the summer series of Rare Book School 2007. This is lecture 503 in a series that began in New York City in November 1972. More on that after this lecture, in which we listen to Richard Kukta from the Fulcher Shakespeare Library, speaking about an interesting project uh, that has darkened his life in recent years, the Trevelyan Miscellany. Good evening. Thomas Trevelyan was born in around 1548, so he was a contemporary of William Shakespeare, um, born about four years afterwards. Trevelyan was a skilled scribe and a pattern maker who may have been employed or associated with the manufacture of textiles. He may have been a draftsman for professional embroiderers. His family may have come from the West Country, probably Cornwall. But wherever his roots, it appears he spent a considerable portion of his life in London. Trevelyan's work is beautiful, but it is not original. He had access to a stunning variety of woodcuts, engravings, broadsides, almanacs, chronicles, and emblem books. Our study of his sources is one of nine indices that provides access and helps us understand his methods and the content of this remarkable document. But Trevelyan was no slavish copyist. He transformed small monochrome images into large and colorful folio pages. Trevelyan completed his work in 1608, at the age of 60. Oddly, inexplicably, he immediately started on another, larger work of the same description, and completed that work in 1616, the year William Shakespeare died. He completed that work at age 68. That copy is now in the Wormsley Library of Sir Paul Getty. Trevelyan was probably self-taught. The miscellany reflects Trevelyan's life and beliefs founded on loyalty to the crown and his Protestant faith. A conservative Protestant piety informed his choice of pictures and text. Information about Trevelyan's sources is easier to track than information about the man. We don't know when he died. We don't even know how he spelled his name. It's spelled one way in the document of the miscellany of 1608 and another way in 1616. The significance of this work. Why is this illustrated miscellany so valued at the Folger? Well, because Trevelyan's work provides a snapshot of Shakespeare's England in all its brilliant complexities, from mythical to the mundane, poetical to practical, religious to secular, and depicts both public and private life. Paul Ruxin is one of our trustees of the Folger. He's a collector of Dr. Johnson, remarkable man, and the new incoming chair of the Board of Trustees of the Folger. He's been a great ally, as I'll explain, uh, on this project. Paul said to me, he said, if you spend time with Trevelyan's miscellany, 
and were suddenly transported to early 17th century England, you would find a world that was not unfamiliar. Trevelyan's pictures and text, hand-colored, hand-lettered, charts pictures and text, charts and geographical calculations are copied and adapted from engraved prints, woodcuts, popular broadsides and ballads, illustrated books, almanacs, and of course the Bible. We know he had access to Topsil, for example, History of Four-Footed Beasts, published in the first edition of 1607. But in some cases, he draws on popular texts and verses that can't be traced, so Trevelyan's is the only source that we have for that. Nicholas Barker writes in his introduction to the Wormsley copy, Nick did a brilliant introduction to that, uh, to that edition. <clears throat> he says, Trevelyan's miscellany is able to tell us more than any other single surviving source about the immensely wide range of graphic imagery that was once available in books and print shops in Shakespeare's London. It's a remarkable sentence. Trevelyan's miscellany is able to tell us more than any other single surviving source about the immensely wide range of graphic imagery that was available in the book and print shops of Shakespeare's London. Only a few of the illustrations and designs have ever been reproduced until now, until the Wormsley facsimile and the Folgers. Again, Nicholas Barker. There is nothing comparable There are no other books remotely like these monumental works, either in purpose or in scale. No picture books of the period are so large in size or number of pages. None provides so diverse a profusion of imagery reflecting the interests, occupations, and needs of his contemporaries. Trevelyan's purpose in doing this book is wonderfully straightforward. To entertain, to educate, and to edify his family and friends. Quote, I took this labor in hand to accomplish my mind, to pleasure my friends, and to show myself more willing than able in performing the same. I leave it to your viewing. The miscellanies are about the same size, roughly 11 by 17, with similar watermarks. There is no title page or colophon. The pages are paginated on the recto only, but with errors and corrections, as you would expect for a document that's 600 pages long. One verso is upside down. He lost track. The original sewing is evenly spaced, but without cords or bands. The books were originally square-backed, but with no rounding or backing. The covers may have been no more than limp vellum. We don't know how it was bound originally. Trevelyan's method appears to have been to create the red and green borders first on each page to draw in those borders before adding text or illustration. We know that because on many pages he runs out of room at the bottom and he squeezes in words, sentences, and lettering. It's what I love about this book. As you go through the pages, there's a wonderful kind of human touch, human impression Trevelyan is on every page. The contents are quite remarkable. Familiar scenes of domestic life 
and husbandry through the seasons. The book opens with a, with a, with a book of hours. I have on the screen that's scrolling through now is, is, is uh, October, one that we used for the prospectus, which I'll show you later. <coughs> Epic political events like the gunpowder plot. Accounts of the rulers, martyrs, apostles, and the Lord Mayors of London. He has a, an image and text for the kings and queens of England from William the Conqueror to James I. He has descriptions of local fairs and the colleges of Oxford and Cambridge. He has pages on astronomy, according to Ptolemy, pages on geography and astrology. He has illustrations of the nine muses, the seven deadly sins, and the several, seven liberal arts. You get a sense of the kind of didactic uh, implications that in, in, in teaching tools. It is indeed a commonplace book. Pages full of biblical history, calendars and saints' days, household proverbs, morals, and lessons. Trevelyan is forever teaching, forever reminding, forever showing us a path to, to uh, Christian behavior, good Christian behavior. His pages of memento mori, botanical illustrations and natural history. I have some out on the table. Information on celestial navigation. He has 23 decorative alphabets at the end of the volume. I'll show you some of those. And he has embroidery patterns. The embroidery patterns were kind of puzzling to us at first. But the more we learned about Trevelyan, we think that he might have, been, he might have designed those patterns. There's, there's embroidery patterns for nightcaps, for example. Now some history of the manuscript and how we put it together, how we made it a book again. <clears throat> Henry Clay Folger was offered this book in 1924 from Mags. He got it on approval. The asking price was 850 pounds. And he turned it down. I do not feel at all sure that the manuscript was made as early as 1608 and would always be uncertain about it and more or less disturbed. Mr. Fulcher didn't make many mistakes in the course of his collecting career. But clearly he knew more about his books than he did about his paintings. He knew more about his books than the manuscript material that he was is reviewing. This one bothered him. Um, he was a very careful collector. We have his the bookseller's catalogs with his annotations. They're wonderful documents, and you can sort of look over his shoulders and see where his, his pen landed and what he was willing to pay and what he wasn't really willing to pay. And so he sent this book back to Mags. He sent this manuscript back to Mags. And then the provenance, this is interesting to me, in whose hands, look at some of those names, Morgan, Rosenwald. <clears throat> it's pretty, <laughs> Mark gasped. <laughs> um, and now it's across the street, Mark. 
When Mr. Felcher declined in 1924, it went to J.P. Morgan. Morgan's library was sold. Rosenwald got it. And you know in the mid-40s, Lessing Rosenwald started dispersing a number of his, placing a number of his items, drawings to the National Gallery, a number of items to the Library of Congress. And he offered this curious miscellany to the Folger. We accepted it. So it was a gift to the Folger Shakespeare Library in 1945. But there were some real problems. When we got it, it, it couldn't be handled. <clears throat> the pages were so, were so damaged. They were so fragile. The way it was described to me, Frank Maury described this. He said, he said, when we were looking at this book in the 70s, this is much later, he said it was like, it was like holding a dry autumn leaf. And as soon as you touched it, it just spidered. It just cracked. It was, it was dried out. It was brittle. It was, it was damaged. And in the 70s, the Folger tried some silking treatments. And I think a lot of our institutions were probably doing that in the 70s. And none of us are, were doing it in the 80s. Um, so we stopped. And basically what we did is, 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 is put it aside. 1995, we did a pre-treatment condition report, and look at that catalog of problems. And that's just a snapshot of, of pages and pages of documentation um, on the state of this particular, on the state of this, this manuscript. The iron gall ink, especially, um, was eating through the eating through the paper and created some serious problems for the conservators. So in 77, finally, it was disbound, and basically it was put on a shelf. Uh, in 78, we chose four leaves and uh, um, sent it on the traveling exhibition, Shakespeare, the Globe, and the World. That's when the new reading room to the Folger was being built, and the library was closed, and that was Sam Schoenbaum's exhibition. And it went on the road, and there were pages from the Trevelyan that were in that. And really, between 1980 and 1995, the amount of work that was, that was needed was so extensive and so beyond what we could do um, that we just f forgot about it. We have a wonderful conservator and wonderful conservation lab at the Folger. It's headed by Frank Maury. And in 1995, um, we got a grant from two individuals, Eric Wyman and B.F. Saul, to do a two-and-a-half-year conservation project on the Trevelyan. It's the first time we thought that we could tackle it. It took two-and-a-half years, and it's the most ambitious conservation project the Folger has ever undertaken. <clears throat> we had it digitized after that, thanks to the Delmas Foundation, so we had high-resolution digital images. And then in 2004, we basically trotted out the exhibition, the, the manuscript, for the first time in word and image, the Trevelyan Miscellany. And I have a little inf some information on that exhibition on the table here. I, when I saw these, when I was putting the PowerPoint together, I saw these and I, I, and I wished, I thought, again, I, I should have, instead of putting them on the same page, I should have put one on each page to see the problems that were the loss, the iron gown ink in the middle, um, the distortions. Um, what was done in the 70s or... Some pages were cut up in order to patch other pages. It's just—it's remarkable when we look back on it on it now. 
when we tackled this project in 95, this is basically what the conservation lab looks like at the Folger. This is a sidebar to my talk, and it's a little plug, because I want you to come to the Folger, and I want you to look at the new conservation lab. It's on the third floor, and that's what we look like now. Um, it's quite wonderful. We had, um, we had a space where we had no surface, no surface areas for conservators. Working on exhibitions, matting and framing, spreading out anything was a, was a problem. And now each conservator has their own, um, their own workbench, separate wet room, dirty room, um, fume hoods um, space. It's, just, it's, a, it's a, remarkable, a remarkable space. We just opened this up last summer. We're very, we're very happy with it. Now, <clears throat> a little bit about the Wormsley copy. Um, they beat us to the punch because in 2000 they published a facsimile of the Wormsley Trevelyan. Um, the great book of Thomas Trevelyan, you see how Trevelyan spelled, and it's a facsimile of the manuscript at, at, at Wormsley. Um, I'm betting that not many people in the room have one because there were only 40 copies. There were 40 copies that were there were 40 copies that were that were done for members, and I think there were only 80 or 100 copies that were printed. And I opened a vein uh, to try and get one. I'm sorry. 100 for sale. For for sale. That's right. Um, you know, I, I was hoping that because of our our, our collaboration, and everything that we might be able to get a discount on the on the copy. Well, that was Terry's laughing. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I can be so naive, you know. I think, gosh, you know, I'm sure they want to, they want this. Too bad. Um, the difference, though, is, is significant, um, and, I, and I say this sort of in 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 all um, sort of good faith. The Wormsley copy is only about a third of the book, um, and they that's, they left out the non-pictorial pages, and the non-pictorial pages are really pretty pretty wonderful. Um, the Folger copy, we decided that if we were going to do this, it was going to be, we are going to go full freight. So it's, it's all 594 four pages are, um, are, are produced in facsimile. And then they see the provenance of the, of the, um, of the Wormsley copy. We all know Robert Harding. Um, he's at Mags, a great, um, a great friend of the Folger, a great friend of many libraries. Um, he is the one, actually, who, who turned up the Wormsley copy. I think the version now at Wormsley is the most tremendous thing I've personally managed to find and in a living room in Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. 2007 is the 75th anniversary of the Folger Shakespeare Library. So we have been turning ourselves inside out for about two years. Um, celebrating. And I think this was about three years ago we started planning this, and I think we had 12 projects that were on the table to um, of various various descriptions to, uh, to, to, to celebrate the, the anniversary. I mean, everything from a radio documentary to a special exhibition to publications to a, a website, Shakespeare in American Life, um, lots of hoopla. Uh, I wanted a book. I wanted a book to mark our 75th anniversary. And I was basically sort of competing against 12, 11 other projects. And in January 2006, I went into a board meeting at the Folger with a prospectus 
of the Trevelyan Project and went out on a limb on this because we produced the prospectus without knowing if the project was going to fly. So I basically had to say, well, I'm going to swallow the costs of this if it, if it doesn't go. And I really wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. And my friend, Mr. Ruxin, uh, spoke up at the board meeting and said, we have to do this. He said, not only do we have to do this, but I will pledge $75,000 to production costs to make it go. So on January 28, 2006, I got a green light for the, for the project, and the next week we had the prospectus ready to mail. We did an addition. We did two additions. We did a collector's edition of 50 copies, and we did a limited edition of 950 copies. I have a copy of the limited edition on the table. And we went back and forth about what we were going to charge, how we were going to get the word out, exactly what we wanted to take on ourselves and what we wanted to, to farm out. We decided that the collector's edition was something that we could manage in-house. 50 copies, we would handle the orders and mailing, and on the table here is a list of the subscribers that sort of ponied up early on and committed to the collector's edition. The book was just ready last April. It's now July. I have eight copies left. We were very gratified the way that the book was, book was re received. 950 copies was a little bit more than I, I wanted to, to get into. So what we did with the 950, we're having it distributed through the University of Washington Press. And they have markets, they have a marketing network, and, and of course in North America, and then in, in, in Europe, and the continent, and um, Asia, and in Australia. And the, their press kit and their uh, brochures are, are, are over there. I learned an awful lot in the course of this project. And I, I, that's one of the reasons, this is a wonderful audience to... To, for me to address, because I can say that, and you know, you know what I mean. Um, we'd never done one of these before. Uh, we did a facsimile of Dunn's marriage letters. That was pretty straightforward. Um, High-resolution images, and wonderful, uh, um, uh, wonderful supporting material. But to do a book that was 600 pages, with um, with 60 pages of front matter and nine indices. Uh, on, a pro on a project that had to be ready by the anniversary year, April 2007, to get a green light in January 2006 and have this book delivered in April 2007 um, was a pretty tall order. And we couldn't have done it without these people. One of the things that we did is we had to figure out who was going to print this book. And we interviewed seven printers in six different countries. We, I, sh I should rephrase that. We got bids from seven printers in six different countries. We brought two to the library to give formal presentations. Uh, we interviewed printers in Singapore, China, two in Italy, one in Germany, one in the U.S., and one in Germany. And th that was remarkable. I didn't know that you could have. I didn't know that you could get such a, a range of, of cost estimates for the same the same project. Um, it, was, it, was, it was truly remarkable. I don't know if any of you have worked with EBS Portolazzi. Um, in, they're in Verona. Um, they printed the book. Um, 
and it's this is this is um, was, was was pretty wonderful because it was an amazing project. And what I have out on the table here, um, I have some web proofs and some visual proofs. Um, we were very proud of the prospectus when we first did it. Now I would love to show it um, because it looks ready and awful. But, it's, but it was part of our education and how a book is made and how we put this together, what we needed to do to get the resolution, to get the copy quality that, that, that we wanted to. So we were working on digital images, color transparencies, web proofs, and digital proofs. And we kept getting the large web proofs back and looking at against, looking against the originals. We didn't send the original out. They were working against it with surrogates. We sent the originals out, and they came back and they weren't right. They were colors that just weren't right. So this man here in the necktie, Benny Nova, is Fabio Bartolazzi. And he's the chairman and CEO of the firm that his mother started a generation before. And he and two colleagues came over because he got so invested in this project, he wanted to get it right. And we spent three days in the digital lab at Folger. And I basically put a drawn fishing sign on my door and went down there and turned the pages of the original for them as they were comparing color transparencies, digital proofs, wet proofs against the original. And then marking up the digital proofs in Italian to take back to Verona to have the book printed. It was wonderful. Uh, to, to, it was wonderful to be in the room and, and watch these watch these people work. And at, at one point, like they're on page two thirty, and Fabio looks back and says, "This is the same red we saw on page 72. He said, "How do you do that?" <laughs> he said, "I'm blessed with almost photographic memory for color." So we spent we spent three days in the in the lab on color correction going through the document, comparing it against the original. And then this is the digital proof here that then he would make, he would make his notes on. But just, I, I ended this with a great deal of respect and admiration for their skills as printers. That's his son standing up. And it was only like in the afternoon of the third day that he let his son say anything. <laughs> We had to decide what, how the collector's edition was going to be was going to be going to be bound, and I asked Frank who 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 should bind this, and he said immediately Peter Garrity at Praxis Binder, Bindery. Did anyone know Peter? Yeah. So we entrusted the uh, collector's edition into the hands of someone that I'd never met before. You trust your colleagues, and Peter went to work on this. And his model for the collector's edition was a, was a book that Frank picked out of the Folger Library collection. And it's a velvet binding from the first decade of the 17th century. And this is the binding that we used as the model for the collector's edition. And instead of having CS on the, on the front board, we have TT for Thomas Trevelyan. But otherwise, it's, it's, it's very, 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 very close. And that's it. Peter at Praxis. I went up to see him. And, of course, there's our baby under wraps, just come back from Italy uh, and um, uh, on, its, on, its, on its palette. The man who did the design work for us was Antonio Alcala, Studio A in Alexandria, Virginia. Studio does our, uh, Antonio does our exhibition catalogs. 
we've, we've had some remarkable success with, with, with uh, Antonio, and we had him do the, do the Trevelyan. <clears throat> and our habit of working with, with, uh, with Antonio is to basically turn him loose. He took one page of the, from the document, wrapped it around the cover, and created this dust jacket for the, for the limited edition. Blind tool of the cover, same same design, and, and we got this we got this back and we're, we're very very happy with it. I can brag about these things because I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so pass pass that around. We've had um, a lot of fun with this book. You know, after it was done, um, we could be very happy when it actually appeared in April of 2007. And so one of the things that we've, we've done that I'd like to do is, is show people how we put this together, how this project came about how we took something from the collection and made it in another form, available to more people, and available in different ways. A document that is still a very fragile document, a document that is still very fragile and, 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 and almost can't be handled, even after the conservation work. And so, you know, the docents will take people through the library, and we're using leaves from the Folger in almost, in like, four out of the last six exhibitions we've been using leaves from the, from the, from the selling from the Trevelyan in, in, in our exhibitions. And, the, and the, our docents see these works out there, and they're taking groups through the library. 
So one of the things that we've started to do is, is make, give this level of instruction to, um, uh, to our docents in their in-service in program. That's the cover. That's the cover that we used on the limited edition. That's a leaf from the, um, uh, from, the, from, the, from the document. The leaf that our designer picked to work with. Now, about those indices. There's an indice, uh, index on Trevelyan's sources, and I, I cited some of those in the, in the beginning. It's remarkable what he had access to, either through his own library, through the library of, of friends. But from what we can gather, Trevelyan wasn't a fancy guy. I mean, he didn't live in a big house and he didn't have a big library. But he was endlessly curious about the life around him at this time, the first decade of the 17th century. We think he probably hung around the bookstalls at St. Paul's, that he might have made sketches of prints and broadsides and woodcuts that were being displayed. So there's a lot of work that's been done on his sources. There's an image index. A volume like this, if you have 23 alphabets, for example, it's very difficult to know, to find quickly what you're looking for. So we did a, a visual index, an image index, as a kind of the, basically, basically thumbnails, to give you access to the documents. So you know, it's coming through pages endlessly, trying to find your, trying to find your way around. It gives you a foothold into a book that, again, is 594 hand-lettered hand pages. There's a cross-reference index to the Wormsley copy. What images are used uh, are, are used again and again. That's the copy acquired by Sir Paul Getty in 1988, and it appeared in the Morgan's exhibition. You may remember that. It appeared in the Morgan's exhibition of Wormsley Treasures in 1999. I remember seeing it at that time. Um, there's a first-line index to the verse, which is very important because we can't always trace where, where Trevelyan got some of, his, um, some of the verse. There's a cross-reference index to Nevison's catalogs of patterns and motifs. Do you remember I mentioned the embroidery patterns? Well, there's an index to that. There's a scripture index. There's a subject index, of course, and there's an iconography index. And those are put together by our, our team, of, team of curators. Now, you know how we think we know a lot of stuff? Um, try finding one person to catalog this book. It's a book, manuscript, and work of art. The only way that this was cataloged was through a, a team of people coming together. And what this project did, it exposed something to it. It exposed a kind of chink in their armor. It, it, it exposed a kind of hole in, 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 our, in, our, in our cataloging environment. All of us have spent years working through early printed books, grant-funded projects in the 80s and 90s, and still trying to get through our backlogs of SGC and wing material, continental material, incompatible. And you know something, we've done a very good job with that. But now, of course, what we're doing is we're moving into other parts of the other parts of the collection, into other formats, into manuscripts, into art, into objects. Things that support study and research, other formats that support study and research. We've got to create access to that material. And the Trevelyan was a wonderful example of showing us, demonstrating to us what we 
So one of the things that we're going to be doing is, I'm not sure if it's going to be in this fall or this spring, is we're going to have a little symposium, a week workshop, maybe you know what we're going to call it. We're going to bring people into the culture to talk about this over the course of the weekend. What do we do with this stuff? It's multi-form, multi-format material. You know, you put this in a, you, you put a, a, a manuscript like this in, in the hands of a manuscript cataloger, and what do they do with all the visual images? How are they going to document that? Give it to an art catalog without paleographic skills? What are they going to do with that? It's inevitably a collaborative process. And there are probably better, more efficient ways to do it, to create those big records than we did. But it was like, because we knew it was a problem, we sort of slowed down. We took time. We gathered people together. And in those conversations about the access points that we were putting in the background. So again, it's something that as, as much as the project taught us, as much as we learned, we also learned what we got. And that's one of the things that, that, was, that was really very, um, very uh, interesting and exciting to us. I want to end with a couple pages. This is the only place where Trevelyan signs the manuscript in our copy, Thomas Trevelyan, page 264, verso, 265, recto. This odd sort of Celtic imagery that we don't know where that comes from. Right? And look at this remarkable page. If you saw that font, if you saw that, that lettering, would you guess 1607? Very interesting. So you have pages like this that are suddenly sort of jumping forward at us and where did this come from? It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable page. It's one of my favorite pages in the, in the, in the Trevelyan and, 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 the, and the next to it, right across the gutter, is this wonderful botanical of pears and leaves. Sort of endlessly fascinating. I'll leave you with that. Thank you very much. In 19, uh, uh, excuse me, in 2005, Rare Book School applied for a challenge grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, which we got. There are a number of people in this room who wrote in support of that grant. Uh, two of the three most powerful letters were written by people in the room, one by Mark Dimination and one by Richard Cookta, the third by Paul Needham. It was unusual for NEH to give a substantial challenge grant for endowment to an organization as young as Rare Book School is, and it was owing to the power of letters like these. Uh, and you can see them because NEH is now using our grant proposal as a model to send to other people who wish to make grant proposals, uh, so they are available on the NEH website. One of the things Richard said in his letter is that the majority of the Fulcher staff had been to Rare Book School, a statement I think that very few research libraries in this country can make, and more fools they, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> now, there's a special uh, event 
waiting you downstairs in addition to the usual potables. On the 16th of July, we had Rubrook School Lecture number 500, James Green from the Library Company. And in honor of that, we mounted an exhibition showing the first 500 posters advertising Rare Book School and before that Book Arts Press Lectures. The exhibition had been put together largely by Vince Golden for the 400th lecture in 1997. And my assistant Ken Giza worked for a very long time to bring the exhibition up to date and to uh, add photographs and other bells and whistles to the posters. I don't know if we actually counted the number of posters that survive as separate entities. It's about 300, I should think. Uh, in the early days, we did not do a poster for every lecture. In one frightful period in 1984, we had 18 evening lectures in 39 days. That was in 84. In 1986, in the calendar year 1986, we had 38 lectures. And there finally is a limit to uh, one's time, energy, and invention. Still, what uh, you will see, I think, is one hell of a lot of posters. They stretch uh, a distance of about 180 feet, and they wrap all the way around the first floor corridors in the uh, in Alderman Library in the Rare Book School uh, space. So my suggestion is that you go to the first floor Alderman Lounge as usual and grab a drink and then start perambulating. Because those of you who have been around especially, you'll find many old friends waiting for you in the hallway. Richard, thank you very much. Please join him at the reception. Of the